as a young man, I was pretty happy given the circumstances. Raised by a single mother in the 80s, it wasn't a picnic for anyone involved. But we had fun. It really wasn't until later, until school was going full force, that there was really any problem. We spent our summers camping at Silverwood Lake, walking down to Thrifty to get some ice cream, and occasionally going to Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm. But school was like a highlighter for me. It basically showed that I wanted attention, and that wasn't really something I could get from a single mom working to feed two boys in the 80s when sexual harassment was still something to be held over women's heads. That part was the hardest. At that point, my mom needed me to be better than I was being. And like any parent, she took me to a psychological professional. Back then, we didn't have a behavioral health system like we do today. It was a different ball game, and ADHD was rampant in our country. A recent study found that 20% or 900,000 people are currently misdiagnosed with this issue. So the pill started. I was given the gambit. Dexedrine, Silert, Ritalin, etc. Now imagine a kid who doesn't know how to appropriately get attention, who wants some attention, on amphetamines. It's what we had, and it's not a different course for many parents. More than 6% of American children take medication for ADD, but they never see the come down. Violent behavior, radical acts of attention-seeking behavior. I went through it. Only one course of action made sense to my struggling single mom, so they put me in a hospital. Christmas, in the hospital. From there, it was a downward spiral. Today's episode, mental health. About one in five adults every year experience mental illness. It's a problem. How does it work and how do we know? How you doing? I'm Philip Kennedy, and sitting either right next to me or right in front of me is Audrey Kennedy. Hey, guys. I'm sure Freud would say something about Audrey's position, representing my relationship with my mother. (laughs) Um, So today's episode is about mental health. Uh, This is sort of an overview, as mental health is a pretty big subject, and it'd probably take about 10 to 20 uh, hour-long episodes to cover most of it. But we're going to attempt to give you just a general idea of what's actually going on. And we're going to start with a history. This is kind of a, a passion project for me. Mental health means a lot to me. And it's kind of why I started the podcast. It's something I've wanted to cover along with social social subjects for a while. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with the history. The concept of mental health has been with us around about 1843 when a book was published about what they called mental hygiene. 
but psychiatry goes back a lot further than that. The term psychiatry was first coined by the German physician Johann Christian Reil in 1808 and literally means the medical treatment of the soul, and it's taken from Greek. Dr. Benjamin Rush is the father of American psychiatry, and he was the first to believe that mental illness is a disease of the mind and not a possession of demons. Uh, His classic work, Observations and Inquiries Upon the Diseases of the Mind, published in 1812, was the first psychiatric textbook printed in the United States. The first mental hospital opened in the U.S. in Virginia in 1773, the public hospital for persons of insane and disordered minds. Um, I did find one article stating that the first mental hospital was opened in Valencia, Spain in 1410. There was a guy named Soranus of Ephesus, and he was one of the early ones to acknowledge mental illness in writing in the second century, and his works were some of the first to be translated into Latin. So mental illness has been around quite a long time. The history of mental illness can get pretty dark if you go back far enough. True. Uh, Ancient Roman treatments for what was considered an imbalance of the humors, the humors being bodily fluids that control mood and behavior, was included. Um, They used bloodletting, emetics and purging, various herbs, drugs, proper diet, as well as hot and cold baths. Those were all used in the belief that they'd restore health by by stabilizing the humoral balance. Uh, And it's generally believed that vomiting, diarrhea, and other physical manifestations after treatment were signs that treatment was working. And later on, treatment didn't get much better. True. Treatments uh, included drowning to severe electric shock, even treatment with mercury, and the more notorious lobotomies. I think once we realized that mental health problems weren't about imaginary fluids in the body and superstitions like curses from pagan gods or being possessed by demons, we decided that these things could be treated or even purged. Although it's not lost that the idea of humors back then is not far off from the hormone imbalances that we blame for some of the mental health illnesses today. Yeah, it's actually pretty close. It's hormonic imbalance or chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, newer medicines weren't introduced until just after the Second World War, uh, and some of, the, some of those are still in use today. Think lithium. Uh, the first publication to define any mental health disorders for diagnosis and treatment internationally adopted by the WHO, uh, or the World Health Organization, was the ICD or the International List of Causes of Death, and they still use that today. I think they're on the 11th edition. The U.S. is really the only country to have adopted the DSM, or the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it's pretty much the Bible for diagnosis and treatment of uh, mental disorders today in the U.S., The ICD has been adopted by all WHO countries, including the U.S., but we still primarily use the DSM. Um, The ICD is overseen by the World Health Organization, and the DSM is overseen by the American Psychological Association. And in those books, there are more than 200 mental illnesses defined today. Yeah, and there's differences between mental disorders and um, kind of... Mental health illnesses, there's a range of severity and complexes and complexities. 
a lot of times when we think of mental health disorders, we think of personality disorders and depression and anxiety and things of that nature. But within the DSM and also considered mental health disorders or illnesses are intellectual disabilities and even developmental disabilities. So things like autism spectrum disorder or cognitive disabilities and things of that nature. And the DSM also once classified homosexuality as a mental disorder under what they called paraphilia and in later editions, sexual orientation disturbance. And that didn't change until after Australia declared homosexuality is not a mental illness in October of 1973, followed by the APA in December of that year. And that was only after protests and speeches by a gay psychiatrist and gay rights advocate, I'm sorry, advocate and APA member Ronald Bayer. And really, you can't talk about the history of mental illness without mentioning Dr. Sigmund Freud. And I think we're going to go ahead and take a break on that. Seriously? Really? All right. And before the break, I teased a little bit about Sigmund Freud. You know him. You love him. Um, And although he's kind of largely discredited these days, Freud did contribute a lot to the field of psychology. Uh, His early works in philosophy influenced him a lot, and his Jewish heritage guided some of the morality issues that he definitely practiced He invented psychoanalysis, which may not be as accepted today, but it's largely credited with the talk therapy that many receive from today's therapists. Freud had some pretty strange theories at one point, even subscribing to his colleague Wilhelm Fleiss's idea that the nose and genitals were somehow connected and that sexual repression and chronic masturbation could lead to physiological problems. And if you want to know more, check out his Wikipedia. It's a pretty extensive and interesting read. It gets pretty dark. I got to visit Freud's house. Yeah. Was it dark? Uh, No, they had lights on. In Vienna? In Vienna. I got to ring his doorbell and walk through his house. I think they even had his couch, one of his couches up for you to see. He also walked around um the the circle in vienna all around Mm -hmm. vienna all the time and i got to got to walk his daily exercise regimen could you feel the oedipus complex (laughs) yes and i smelt his cigars everywhere i went yes he did eventually die of mouth cancer uh, because he had a terrible cigar smoking problem and i don't know if he had part of his jaw removed or the whole thing but he did have to have some surgery at one point. I wonder what he would think about his cigar obsession and maybe his issues with oral fixation. (laughs) That'd probably be pretty interesting to Freud at this point in time. Um, Also, he was uh, doctor-assisted suicide death, which is pretty uncommon. Vienna's a little bit more uh, open to that kind of thing. But once he found out he had cancer, he just pretty much wanted to end it. I did not know that about him. Yep. Um, So neurosurgery at one point was the standard for treating patients. And Freud was not a stranger to this kind of stuff. And these patients were considered otherwise untreatable. The simple process of the frontal lobotomy 
became popular in the U.S. in the late 1940s. It originally started out by drilling two holes into the skull uh, towards the frontal lobe, and those holes were injected with chemicals that would deteriorate gray matter in the brain and destroy the frontal lobe. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. By the early 1950s, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the U.S. It was fairly commonly used in the treatment of mental illness and even used in cases of what they called female hysteria. Uh, the most famous key case being uh, President John F. Kennedy's own sister, Rosemary Kennedy. And the popularization of the surgery was credited to the simplification by a neurologist named Walter Freeman and his associate, James W. Watts. They would electrocute patients to knock them out or immobilize them, and they would take an ice pick and hammer it into their eye sockets. <laughs> Our listeners can't see me cringing right now. It may have been a bit more complicated mapped out than that, but that was the be uh, the basic idea. Lost popularity in the later 50s. And once again, the U.S. was not the first country to discourage the practice. <gasps> <laughs> Actually, it was banned in 1950 in the Soviet Union, and that was quickly followed by Japan. So we weren't even number three. And this was all eventually replaced by the use of drugs like Thorazine, and all lobotomies were still performed in the U.S. In the late, teen, late 1970s, President Jimmy Carter and the U.S. Congress created the National Committee for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. That is a huge mouthful. And that was in order to see the use of medical treatments for mental illnesses like lobotomies. As a matter of fact, his idea in doing that was to look into uh, the use and practice of lobotomies. And they're still legal in some United States. I'm going to have to check up on our state. <laughs> yeah. I could take you in for uh, female hysteria. Female hysteria. Having <laughs> Jim an ice pick into your brain. That's terrible. We probably shouldn't joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, today we have a lot of bodies overseeing our mental health treatments and diagnoses. And very few psychosurgeries are performed, and patients can't be forced to undergo those surgeries. We have updated laws governing how people with mental disorders can and cannot be treated, at least in the U.S. and most developed countries. And I think that's kind of the biggest thing, really. The uh, ADA, or Americans with Disabilities Act, protects a lot of people with uh, diagnosis against discrimination. Mm -hmm. And as a culture... There's been a push toward removing the stigma associated with mental, behavioral, and emotional disorders, but it's not making a lot of headway these days. Well, what about how mental illness is portrayed in today's media? So when I think about kind of um, stigma or, or things associated with mental health, I think about, you know, back in the day, there were movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Rain Man is kind of the pretty classic yeah. example of an individual with autism, Benny and June. And then you think about some movies that have come out a little more recently. There's um, Silver Linings Playbook that got, I think, rave reviews, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure. I don't yeah. really follow the awards and nominations and stuff, but people raved about it. Girl Interrupted, Shutter Island, and even Pixar did a, a, the Inside Out, 
where they kind of addressed emotions and feelings and um, had sad characters and angry characters kind of exploring mental health. So um, it was a very paint by numbers kind of view of mental health. Yeah. Yeah. It was targeted towards children, so they couldn't get um, too complicated, but. I don't know. I I wonder what that does for stigma for mental health. Is it moving us in the right direction? Are these movies and kind of how a media how media addresses mental health and depicts it is that is that accurate? Is it helping to make progress towards stigma or is it making it worse? That is a good question. We're gonna have to look up some research on that. Is that another podcast episode? <laughs> it's gonna have to be. Historically, people with mental health conditions have been the most abused and discriminated against group, more so than um, the elderly, as a matter of fact. Some of the things that might be called abuses, however, are looked upon by professionals in the field as useful tools. An example might be using restraints on someone who is self-injurious or can't be controlled. There's a place called the Judge Rottenberg Center, And it's consistently protested as an inhumane treatment. Uh, But a lot of parents have found it life savings as a means of very last resort. And just in the name of disclosure, we are not affiliated with the center. If you Google it, you're going to find some very conflicting ideas about it. Yeah, so we talked about how, uh, you know, developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities are considered uh, mental health illness, mental health conditions. And a majority of the individuals that go to Judge Rottenberg Center have some type of developmental or intellectual disability. Mm -hmm. And the Judge Rottenberg Center uses skin shock treatment as a means to treat really what are life-threatening behaviors, such as severe self-injury, severe aggression, to the degree that people's lives are are at risk, Mm -hmm. um, either from traumatic brain injury from self-injury or losing an eye. Um, They may have severe rumination. And so in a, not in a majority, but in all of these instances, there's um, an ethics board that has to review cases and before individuals are admitted and and treated. And so these individuals receive um, skin shock treatment to try to decrease some of these behaviors. Which sounds extreme, but when you consider that um, somebody's life may be at risk, mm-hmm. um, it kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. And a lot of parents have talked about how their children may not be here today and definitely might not have had a quality of life. And these treatments are used when all other treatments have failed. So um, any other type of behavioral treatments drugs, sedatives, restraints, things of that nature weren't effective. So we aren't going to dive too deep into this topic, uh, but know that there is more information out there if you want to learn. I just caution everyone to remain really critical of the information that you read and encounter and learn as much as you can before you come to your own conclusions. Yes, always be critical of the information you consume. Um, There is an organization out there called Mental Health America. They have their own website, 
And if you check it out, they offer a lot of advice to people with mental health conditions. And predominantly this advice is to curtail any and all of what they consider abusive or discriminatory practices. And uh, there's a lot of information. While there are abuses in any field, we do want people to know it's important to look to the behavior of the people in that field who try to focus on ethical practices. The doctors and physicians who try every single day to care about their patients. And most fields have ethical guidelines and require ethical continuing education as well. And that's just for your information. So I found a survey by a guy named Otto F. Wall that looked at stigma associated with mental illness. And it's called Mental Health Consumers Experience of Stigma. And they surveyed 1,301 mental health consumers meaning people who use um, psychiatrists, uh, mental health drugs, and things of that nature. And they asked about discrimination and stigma experiences. And the survey found that 7 out of 10 respondents were treated less favorably once their own condition was known. 27% found that they were often to very often told to lower their expectations in life, uh, meaning they were told to expect to not have fruitful lives. Um, because they had a mental illness. More than half of the respondents reported being shunned or avoided, and 74% reported that they did not tell anyone outside of their immediate family about their illness. The majority of those people worried about being discovered constantly. Um, Notably, there were very few reports of actual discrimination, but the findings stated that a portion of respondents weren't frequently in situations to be discriminated against, like searching for a new job or shopping for a new house. Um, a lot of them uh, were in pretty, uh, pretty substandard situations where they were not able to afford a new house or they didn't think that they could get a new job. Um, about one in three respondents actually did report being turned down for a job, which they were qualified for after the discovery of their status. So while things are getting a little bit better for those who suffer from mental health conditions, the battle is far from over. And this can be attributed to lack of education about mental health conditions, lack of oversight among those who are in a position to discriminate, and possibly absence of sensitivity training. I'm curious what mental health illnesses those individuals suffered from, what their diagnosis was, and how their diagnosis might correlate with their experiences. So for instance, somebody that has a diagnosis of schizophrenia, was their experience the same as somebody who has a diagnosis of anxiety? I think that that would be interesting because I think there are some um, mental health disorders that have more stigma attached to them than others. Probably. And we'll probably go over that in a little bit. But all this kind of convolutes the issue. Still, almost a quarter of Americans suffers from a mental disorder, and over half of Americans are affected. It's estimated to be about one-third of people worldwide. It's notable that there are diagnoses that exist in America that do not exist in other countries. And there are other countries that have a much different qualification to be diagnosed with a mental disorder. Yeah, I mean, even in this country, there are some diagnoses that are controversial, and some professionals or clinicians feel that they shouldn't exist. One of the more controversial diagnoses is dissociative identity disorder, which um, a lot of people know as multiple personalities. And many people, when they think of 
uh, dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities, they think of the book Sybil or even the movie with Ed Norton, Primal Fear, where I think he was charged with maybe murder and presented himself as having multiple personalities pretty much. But the disorder is quite controversial because some professionals feel that it's not a legitimate disorder. Uh, They think that individuals diagnosed are usually extremely susceptible to hypnosis and suggestions during therapy sessions, that um, clinicians that do diagnose these people often, they're a little bit self-serving and that they benefit from either research articles that they publish or books that they write. And that it's diagnosed in such a tiny percentage of the population by a tiny percentage of clinicians, just from a statistical standpoint, there's people that are really um, skeptical that it is even a legitimate disorder. Yes. Some clinicians feel that the symptoms and how dissociative identity disorder presents itself more closely aligns with borderline personality disorder um, and kind of cite that individuals with multiple personalities or DID are really eager to talk about their disorder, explain it, act upon it, and that this kind of is a little histrionic and more closely resembles certain personality disorders as opposed to dissociative identity disorders. So even within our own country in the DSM, um, there's some disorders out there that are contested among professionals. Yeah, and that could be part of why other countries don't uh, go by the DSM or have the same diagnoses as the United States. Um, It seems to be, though, that almost everyone you talk to has a diagnosis or another, and detractors are consistently asking why this is so prevalent these days. And these detractors are the people who question whether these disorders actually exist or give people a hard time over having things like anxiety disorder or depression. One reason is that science is now finding out that disorders come in spectrums rather than just black and white. So they range in severity and topography and how they present. Another reason is that the stigma has decreased significantly enough for people to feel more comfortable with being open about having problems. Uh, I found an article in 2010, Wired Magazine interviewed Dr. Alan Francis. And in the interview, Dr. Francis goes over some of the ways that diagnosis is getting diluted in the new DSM. He outlines how it's getting easier to diagnose disorders because the definitions are so broad. Francis was one of the lead editors of the DSM-4 and takes his own fault in the skyrocketing of diagnoses like autism and ADHD, this could also lead to a lot of misdiagnosis. Dr. Francis also mentions how certain things were removed, like the exception for grieving. That means that in the new edition, doctors won't consider personal grief, like the loss of loved ones and their possible diagnosis. I don't know what to what extent this is considered, but it's definitely food for thought. So in other words, if somebody were to go visit a therapist, Um, and was perhaps concerned about depression or suffering from some other mental health uh, issues, Mm. but they recently lost a loved one, Yes, the clinician would not be required to consider such a severe life event. In the diagnosis. In the diagnosis. Yes. And that could be a huge reason for the increase in mental illness, actually. Definitions becoming more broad, 
and allowing people to be diagnosed who would not otherwise be diagnosed. Hmm. So whether it's mental illness actually increasing in the population or just a fabricated perception, there's a definite increase in diagnosis, at least. There was a huge decrease, by the way, in suicides after the early 1990s. And that, it's been speculated, can be attributed to the large availability of SSRIs. Uh, and these drugs are drugs that prevent serotonin from being absorbed back into the body so that their function um, may continue. And it's largely believed that this is the chemical or hormone that aids in happiness in people. You know the drugs like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, etc. And sales of those drugs skyrocketed in the 90s. And we're not going to get into conspiracy theories about big pharma here or anything like that. Treatment of mental illness in the 90s increased from SSRIs to new bipolar drugs. Talk therapy started getting a little less Freudian psychoanalysis and a little more laboratory-oriented, meaning that science developed new techniques to view the human mind. And that includes the fMRI. The first fMRI study was conducted in 1990 by Seiji Ogawa at Bell Labs. Yeah, so fMRI studies measure brain activity. Yes. Um, and none of our listeners can actually see the air quotes I use, but I use those air quotes because brain activity is an assumption, right? So what's actually being measured is blood flow to a particular region of the brain. And then it's assumed that the increased blood flow means that the area of that, the brain is activated. And there's this phenomenon these days that if something, anything, a flyer, an article you see online, advertising, if it has an image of a brain scan on it, people automatically trust it. They trust that the information and the content is accurate and they're um, more open to it. Um, yeah, there have been studies about this. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting um, because as advanced as neuroimaging and neuroscience is, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with the um, assumptions and processes involved when when people come to conclusions about those brain images yeah. and where these studies come from. So um, have you ever heard of the dead salmon study? I've not. Okay. So there were some researchers, uh, Bennett et al., and they published a study in 2010 that was based on some rather unexpected results. And it started because they wanted to investigate how people uh, would respond to certain social stimuli. So they were going to show images to people and using an fMRI measure their brain activity. And in order to test the machine for proper contrast and imaging and things of that, na that nature, they were putting um, things other than humans in it. So like balloons filled with um, oil or other substances. I think they put um, pumpkins and eventually a dead salmon That's in cute. there. <laughs> Um, Somebody just had a dead salmon in their lunchbox. I'm not quite sure how they acquired the salmon, but yeah. Um, so they used it to test the fMRI. And later down the road, so they, they tested it with all these things and I guess decided that it was functioning okay and, and conducted their study. But mm -hmm. later down the road, one of the researchers was asked to present on how to properly analyze fMRI data. And so in order to come up with examples and kind of talk about this, he had to work with some 
data. And he remembered um, their, their salmon data. So when someone's analyzing the data from scans, you basically tell the computer to run a bunch of analyses. And the brain is broken down into sections, and there's hundreds of thousands of these sections in a study, and they all get compared to each other to see if there's activation, to see if there's increased blood flow in those regions. And when you do so many comparisons, you eventually run into a problem called multiple comparisons, which basically says if you do enough of them, some will turn out positive. So, um, and this is kind of getting into a little bit of the the statistics behind the science. But um, if some of them come out positive, that's also known as false positives. And so to um, correct for this, you can run different analyses to kind of control for that. But then you lose statistical power, so to speak, which means that you won't pick up false positives, but you also might not pick up things that are actually there, false negatives. And so it's debated which of these is more detrimental, but all of this is basically to say um, when the researchers looked at their data and used um, corrected comparisons for their statistics, the dead salmon showed no activity. But when they did not use the corrected comparisons, the very dead salmon um, had activity in the brain and in the spinal cord. That's amazing. Yes. So... Um, always be critical of the of the information that you're taking in. Yes, you know, at, at the time, this um kind of corrected comparisons, kind of um, controlling for these things, um, it wasn't done like twenty five to forty percent of the studies. Um, and that number has since dropped. I think um, back at, shortly after they had kind of presented this information, it was had dropped to like only ten percent of the studies mm-hmm. didn't use this um, corrected comparisons method in analyzing the data. And I'm not quite sure what it is now. But um, stay skeptical, listeners. Stay skeptical just because there's a picture of a brain or somebody says that the brain is activated. Not cynical, skeptical. Yes, skeptical. There was activation in a dead salmon at one point. So Yes. Now, since then, fMRI science has absolutely exploded. It's good to note. And they're trying to see everything from in the brain from love to how the brains of people with autism function. And this is very important to find out how to treat diseases um, or illnesses or mental disorders such as autism, Uh, depression, anxiety, and we still don't know a lot about the brain or how accurate fMRI studies are. So there's also new, almost radical forms of treatment, Uh, and these seem radical at the time when they came out, but now they're fairly commonplace treatments, but they don't really use a lot of technology, and they're treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. Yeah, so most... um people would kind of lump these under the category of talk therapy. And there's different modes of treating individuals via therapy. Um, There's psychodynamic therapy, family therapy, interpersonal therapy, and more. Um, I think some of the more common ones these days are probably, uh, like you mentioned, the cognitive behavior therapy, and also probably interpersonal therapy, if I had a guess. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Cognitive behavior therapy works under the belief that people are experiencing um, symptoms or strife because of disordered thought processes and because of disordered cognitive patterns. And so the goal is to remedy those thoughts by developing goals related to behavior and thought um, that the patient and the therapist work on together. Um, and then some of the other talk therapies like interpersonal therapy, uh, which is typically used to treat depression, focuses more on patients' relationships with people in their lives, so family and friends, and how their depression or how their disorder might affect those individuals and kind of tries to remedy things from that perspective. Um, and then the, the psychodynamic therapy is probably what a lot of people think of when they think of talk therapy and um, going to see a therapist. They, That's kind of the, um, you lay on the couch and you just talk about whatever comes to your mind, this free association kind of thing where um, whatever comes about is supposedly what your unconscious is kind of thinking and the goal is to bring some of those unconscious patterns to the forefront so that it can be addressed. Yeah. And due to un advances in what we understand about cognition and how the brain interprets information, many of these new therapies have formed and that's just because of our understanding. And they're far more effective than the previous treatments. Uh, one such treatment comes from a very interesting place. Uh, we have an interview today with a Dr. Theodore Hoke of Northern Virginia. And we're going to go ahead and take that interview when we come back. Seriously? Really? Okay, we're going to go ahead and play the interview now. Uh, I just wanted to let you know beforehand that there are some dogs barking in the background. Dr. Hoke does have dogs, and just because we're doing an interview doesn't mean his life is going to stop. So here you go. All right, so we're going to get started with this uh, interview, everybody. Uh, welcome, Dr. Theodore Hoke, uh, to the show. Thank and you. we're just... <laughs> How you doing, Ted? Good, good. Good. Can I call you Ted? Absolutely. All right, I will. So we're going to get started with some background. First of all, who are you and what is your title? Okay, I am Dr. Ted Hoke. Um, I'm, uh, I'm on the faculty of the Behavior Analysis Training Program at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. I've been there for 18 years. I'm a licensed psychologist, licensed professional counselor, licensed behavior analyst, doctoral level board certified behavior analyst. Um, what's here in the background is my dogs. I'm doing this from home and they, they never bark unless I'm on a conference call. Um, yeah, what, what I, I, I have a, a doctoral degree from West Virginia university in instructional design, but somehow I had all the classes that, that met the requirements for psychologist licensure. I, um, it was a long time ago, different time, different requirements. I uh, have a master's in psychology, behavior analysis from the University of Wisconsin, bachelor's in psychology, University of Illinois, postgraduate or graduate certificate in marriage and family therapy from Virginia Tech. And other than that, I just work, see clients, go to work at the university, come home, feed my dogs. That's kind of what I do. It's a pretty extensive resume. It is. 
It is, especially the dog part. That's impressive. I don't know how you've had uh, enough in your lifetime to do all that. Well, I'm really um, for, that helps. Yeah. For those not familiar, just let us know what a BCBA is. Board Certified Behavior Analyst. This is a credential that has been around since 2000. I was the 53rd in the world. My certification number is 1-00-0053. I was the first in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And now there are probably close to 40,000 behavior analysts in the world. There's doctor level, BCBAD. There are about 4,000 of those. Master's level. And then there's BCABA, Board Certified Assistant Behavior Analyst, which is a bachelor's level credential. What behavior analyst certification is, is a credential that indicates that the person bearing that credential has met particular coursework requirement, so has had sufficient coursework in behavior analysis, which is a natural science like biology. It's not a social science like psychology. Uh, behavior analysis actually grew out of physiology. It dates back to Sessionov, who was a physiologist, and, and Darwin, um, and from there Pavlov, and then kind of moved on from there through, um, oh, Watson, Thorndike, Skinner, and a lot of people since Skinner. Yeah. So it's, it's a natural science. And what this does is it, it, the credential is based on one's meeting the coursework requirements, degree requirements, experience requirements. You need between, depending on how you do it, 750 or 1,500 hours of supervised work yeah. to, to sit for the exam. And that's about to change um, in a couple of years to minimum 2,000, which I think is a great idea. So what it does is it shows that the person bearing that credential is actually competent to practice behavior analysis. Sort of like a psychologist license shows that you're competent to practice at that time you got licensed psychology or a counselor's license shows you're competent at the time you got licensed to practice counseling. Okay. That's, yeah, we'd want our people qualified. Yep. What in life drove you to help people? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can tell you um, I grew up with a younger brother with Down syndrome. He was born when I was eight. He died when he was 13 and I was 21. I can also tell you that when I started college at University of Illinois in the late 70s, I, I, I quickly learned that there were a lot of experiences to be had outside of the classroom and ended up after three semesters on academic probation, pretty much failing everything but psychology. So I became a psychology major and um, took the two or three behavior analysis courses, two of them, I think, that University of Illinois offered. I, I majored in psychology, minored in special ed, and those two psychology courses were in special ed, or not psychology, those two uh, behavior analysis courses. And I'll tell you, the psychology courses were fun and they were interesting, but it was so theoretical. And mm -hmm. it, it seemed weird to me that with the right statistics, you can get just about anything to, to happen, you know? And it, it seemed, it, it bothered me that rather than looking at things that are kind of, you know, along the lines of inches and yards 
and genes and things like that that you see in, in, in natural science. Um, yeah. Social science stuff was decided kind of by agreement and by statistics. What I liked about the two behavior analysis courses was, A, they were interested in the individual, not yes. the average person, because the average person doesn't exist. So you're actually working with one person on her or his behavior. Um, but also, it's self-correcting. You can't fake it. And by that, yes. I mean, I could do something awful and egregious and fake some data and get it published. But... I have to report my procedures with sufficient completeness and sufficient clarity that others can reproduce my procedures. And if they don't get the same results I do, it either means we're, we're finding the parameters within which those procedures work, or it's also quite likely that I kind of faked something, right? So yes. it's really hard to fake a science that is based on replication. Because it always comes out. It always comes out. And I really liked that about this. It's a very ethical ethical science. The other thing, though, um, again, you can find it may be that you have found the bounds beyond which it doesn't work. And that's a possibility, too. Mm -hmm. But then you replicate it exactly as it was done before. And if you keep doing that and don't get the same results, there's something fishy there. Yeah. And there's a lot in the the non-natural sciences, the more kind of um, mental sciences that is is less like that, um, which ABA kind of differs in the well, fact that there is a lot more natural science to it, a lot more uh, like actual science. Yeah. Behavior analysts, we don't diagnose. First off, we're not licensed yeah. to diagnose. In most behavior analysis training programs, unless they're part of a clinical psych program, uh, one isn't trained to diagnose, but I think very often too much is made of diagnosis. And I bring this up because you mentioned the, the, the mentalistic stuff. What diagnoses are, are names given to patterns of behavior that have been exhibited for particular periods of time, minimum periods of time, with some inclusionary and exclusionary criteria, like not in the course of another illness, not accounted for by something else, not accounted for, not in the course of, of addiction, something like that. So essentially, mm -hmm. there are names given to patterns of behavior. And a problem with the diagnoses is that people tend to think that it's something that the person has. Yeah. And the evidence for the person having it is how they behave. But you give it that name based on how they behave. So I behave this way because I have this diagnosis. Well, how do you know I have this diagnosis? Because I behave this way. It's circular. You don't get anywhere that yeah. way. You know? no. At the same time, you know, I'm not saying mental illness isn't real. It is real, and it's devastating. But what I am saying is we have to we have to look beyond reifying things that 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 kind of like are socially constructed. There was a time when there was a diagnosis called drapedomania, and I don't know if it was psychological or psychiatric, but this was a long time ago, like before the Civil War. And what drapedomania was was a diagnosis given to people who were enslaved who would run away from their masters because clearly there's something wrong with them because they want to run away. Well, you know, we would never give anyone a diagnosis of drapedomania today, right? It was kind of a reflection of the times. Yeah. Up until later in the 70s, some point in the 70s, 
homosexuality was considered a mental illness. Yeah. It no longer is. It's kind of just how people are made. So, you know, no. things are co socially constructed and, and they no. so. And it took uh, APA board members protesting the APA annual meeting in order to start the wheels to kind of get that changed. As a matter oh, of fact, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But, you know, that was not too long after the whole Stonewall thing. You know, before that, no. people who were gay were pretty much fighting for their lives, you know, because it was it was criminal. And you could you could yeah. go to jail, you'd go to prison or you could be committed to a psych hospital or forced yeah. into therapy that you didn't want. Yeah, including uh, electric shock therapy, ECT. Lobotomies. Yeah, all sorts of things. Lobotomies. You know, Oscar Wilde, I think it was Oscar Wilde, when he was on trial for being gay, one of the prosecutors asked him if he was suffering from homosexuality. And what he said was, well, I wouldn't call it suffering. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah. We've, well, come, we've, we've come a long way. And you mentioned that part of a diagnosis is, you know, um, without other influences or without other things that could be diagnosed yeah. instead. Uh, Audrey and I kind of stumbled across an article in doing this episode that mentions that some of the new DSM requirements for some of the diagnoses kind of exclude looking at, you know, personal grief or, you know, personal things happening to them in order to get the diagnosis. So like the psychologist could disregard those things and give the diagnosis anyway. Yeah. I'm not sure that a good one would though. And frankly, you know, the DSM, it is intended to be a theoretical. Yes. So it, it, it doesn't, you know, because there are what there, there's one behavior analysis, but there are 10,000 psychologies. So uh -huh. it, it's not intended to, you know, conform to, to the Jungians or the Freudians or, the Skinnerians or anyone. It's just meant to be, you know, based on objective data. And yeah. in that regard, if taken that way, it's pretty good. Um, and I think the, the main problem with the DSM is once you finally know the old one inside and out, lately they come out with a new one and you got to learn it all over again. And I really miss my multi-axial diagnostic system. Could have done with the global assessment of functioning, but I loved having access one, two, three, and four. Um, <laughs> I forget yeah, it's it's meant to be atheoretical, and that's good because what that brings it down to is, you know, things that you observe the person doing or that the person reports doing or not doing, things that the person mm -hmm. does or doesn't do that are in excess or greatly deficient in some way from how most people do them, or they yes. cause great distress to that person or to others. And then the exclusionary criteria are, are typically things along the lines of, not due to intoxication, not due to uh, medical illness, not better accounted for by another psychiatric problem. You know, they yeah. have to occur at least for a particular period of time and so on. Yeah. Yes. And apparently they're loosening up every single time. But I think the the good guys are, are really trying to take a, a very comprehensive look at things like that and what you're doing in your life, the the period of time things are happening. The good guys are still out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do understand that you're doing some pretty interesting things in regard to the treatment of some of the mental disorders that are out there um, using multiple disciplines that you obviously have credentialed. And what, what kind of things are you doing? Well, I, I, I work with people who are trauma survivors. 
not just you know people with post-traumatic stress that might be diagnosed the way it's traditionally diagnosed. Yeah. There, there's them, and and really, what 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 is big there? What I do um, in that regard is um, very often prolonged exposure therapy, okay. which amounts to under safe conditions. First, there's a lot of teaching that goes into it, teaching the person that there is, you know, there, there's a matter of being safe and there's a matter of feeling safe. And yeah. even when they're in a completely 100% safe situation, they don't feel safe. And, you know, what, what they're reacting to there isn't the thing that happened years ago or months ago, and it happened and it ended. What they're reacting to now is a bunch of stuff in their environment that they may or may not be aware of that elicits those same feelings and evokes those same thoughts. And so they're also reacting to those thoughts and those feelings. Mm -hmm. And you do what you need to do to shut them down, to turn them off. Okay. Awful. The whole thing works by negative reinforcement. And okay. what I need to do, what people who work with these people need to do is teach the folks that, you know, what you're responding to is your feelings and your feelings are good. Your feelings kept you safe. This hypervigilance kept you safe. You know, all of this mm. stuff is good and it was adaptive at the time and it was adaptive in the time after, you know, because that kept, you know, bad things from reoccurring. Mm. And right now you're in a different situation and you're still, you know, features of it are similar. And so they're eliciting this other stuff and you're reacting to it. And so it's a matter of, go yeah yeah and so it's a matter of teaching the person how to be able to have thoughts and how to be able to have feelings without them being so distressing and so disturbing that the person has to flee or do anything to shut them down you can't take the memories away yeah you can teach the person to live with them and not be distressed by them and okay. this, this takes some time you know what's interesting though that, that, that I haven't read a whole lot about. I've talked with some really smart people about it. And so uh, there are people who are, know a lot more about this than I do. I, I, I've heard that there are experiments with MDMA for treatment yes. of post-traumatic stress. And actually, yes. it's pretty promising. And frankly, yeah. if that works, I think it's far more kind to do a brief period of that than you know 15 or 20 weeks of prolonged exposure. Yeah, the articles I read on it, they're mainly using very intense uh, jargon with it, a lot of uh, you know psychological jargon with it. But it's yeah. it's basically using MDMA in a very safe environment, using uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and pairing yeah. with it, and they're being being very uh, very discreet and very discriminative about who they pick for these trials as well. Okay. Well, yeah, they have to. Yeah, because again. Right now, they're looking whether or not it may, looking at whether or not it may look. Next, they have to figure out the parameters within which it'll, or whether or not it'll work. Then they have to figure out the parameters within which. But you know what? 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 What I do? It's learning based. It's kind of nurture. Yeah. What that is? That's kind of addressing the physiology. It's nature. And people will, as a behavior analyst mm -hmm. and also a psychologist, I think it's nature and nurture. The people who insist that it's all chemical, they're right. Our bodies are made up of chemicals. And, and when stuff happens to you, you're creating more of some chemicals, various hormones, 
less of other chemicals, and you do that long enough, it changes your chemistry. It can change, you know, your your the way you you work electrically. It can change your genes. You know, this stuff can. Yeah. Be, I was talking to someone the other day who told me that the um, the grandchildren of I don't think it was Blitz survivors, but it was someone in in World War II. The, the the poles who were under prolonged you know really bad stuff they're actually thinner than most people they're thinner than most people is that what you're saying than most people yeah that 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 it, it appears genetically that the epigenetics <laughs> the way that the genes have changed perhaps as a result of these experiences that happened to these physiological beings made up of electricity and chemicals and all sorts of other stuff that that's altered, you know, the chemistry and altered the genetics. And so we have different people, but then think about, think about the kids who've grown up in places like, you know, Kabul or other parts of Afghanistan, uh, you know, Afghanistan, yeah. 40 years they've been at war Constant trauma. one or other, mm-hmm. the Israeli kids and the kids in Gaza, you know, think about all these people who are living under pretty frequent bombardment. And how yeah. that might be altering them chemically because you have yeah. all that fight or flight stuff going on and how, you know, how they work electrically, how that might be altered and how, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, there they go. How that, that may be altering, you know, genetic makeup. There's an excellent yeah. book um, that discusses this. Um, and I haven't gotten to that part yet. And I can't wait until I do. It's called, um, oh, what is it? Uh, the Science of Consequences by Susan Schneider, and I okay. really highly recommend that to everyone. That's that's a book in which she discusses just this sort of thing: how the consequences of our behavior, how the environmental stuff changes us physiologically, genetically, and so on. But again, okay. it, it's the neurologists are right; it's all the nervous system. The the, the psychiatrists are right; it's all chemical and electrical. Behavior analysts are right. You know, it's environmental. The family therapists yeah. are right. It's it's family system stuff going on that's getting it. You know, they're all right. We're all looking at different parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, working together is definitely an important thing. You mentioned one thing that I just wanted to explain to the listeners really quick who aren't familiar with ABA. Um, you mentioned negative reinforcement. Yeah. And just a quick overview of okay. what that is. Yeah. Think about this. You're outside. You're in the shade. You walk out mm-hmm. of the shade. Suddenly the sun's in your eyes, right? Yes. What you do is you put your hand on your forehead so the sun is no longer in your eyes. Okay. Well, you're more likely, you're, you're, you're likely in future under that circumstance or one like it to make that movement with your hand toward your forehead. Why? Because in that circumstance, when that stimulation was happening, sun in your eyes, the movement you did made it go away. Or mm-hmm. it's kind of like you have an itch, you scratch it. You know, yes. and what that does is makes the itch go away. You know, it's mm-hmm. as simple as that. Um, many people equate negative reinforcement with punishment. They're actually two very different things. Negative reinforcement is usually the, the terms associated with that are escape and avoidance. What escape is, is when the big bad thing is happening and I behave in a way that makes the big bad thing stop. And so next time I'm in a circumstance in which a big bad thing is happening, I'm more likely to do that. You know, why do we hit the button on top of the alarm clock? It makes it stop. 
Why? Yes. You know, because it's worked that way in the past. What avoidance is, is something's going on that has either preceded or accompanied the bad thing. And that itself gets you to behave in a way that either gets the bad thing to not happen or it delays the bad thing. It pushes it off a little bit. So think about, you know, you, you, you get into your house and you have an yeah. alarm system and you, you know, you get in and you hear the tick, tick, tick. I have that on my alarm system in my house and it ticks for about a minute until the alarm goes off. What that tells me is I have one minute in which to turn the alarm off. So I turn yeah. the alarm off, right? So it doesn't happen. It's not the greatest example. But with avoidance, what we do is we behave in ways that get the bad thing to not happen. Now, a thing with escape and avoidance and with negative reinforcement yeah. is that you don't need to be aware that it's happening in order for it to happen. Yes. But also, a lot of those things that get us to escape them or avoid them, they're mm -hmm. actually not real great. And so they not only occasion that behavior, but they make us feel a particular way. We're creeped out by it. We're anxious. You know, we're frightened. We're sad. Any number of things. And okay. so, what, you know, sometimes we're in situations where we can't quite put our finger on it, but something's weird. And so we do okay. something to get out of that situation. That's also negative reinforcement. That's avoidance. And there what we're reacting to is subtle stuff going on that's making us feel a particular way. And both that subtle stuff and that feeling evoked our behaving in a way that got negatively reinforced in the past. Yeah, and then we're more likely to do it in the future. Well, yeah, and so that's, that's, what's, that's what goes on with post-traumatic stress. You turn it off. But that's what goes on with a lot of things, you know? It's like, yeah. and, and yeah. I kind of wonder, like, what's the hope with doing the treatment that you're doing? Where are you hoping to take this? Well, when I started getting training in trauma and working with people with trauma, yeah, there are first responders. You know, there are, there are military folks. There are people who've survived rapes and assaults and other things. I started thinking about back when I worked in adult services for people with intellectual disabilities. And these people with kind of a more limited understanding of the world than most folks, limited language abilities and so on, the things that, that some of them experience on a daily basis, like restraint sometimes, seclusion sometimes. And the thing about restraint and seclusion is you don't generally go to those things willingly, right? Someone takes no, yeah. you there or someone restrains you. If you know you are doing it willingly, that's called something else. It's called a fetish. But that's not that's not what these people have. And and so there's that. But then there's also there's also a good amount of aggression. You know, people with yeah. behavior problems tend to be grouped with other people with behavior problems. And so yeah. I work in environments where my clients, adults with disabilities, would be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, with depression, with something. They would be hypervigilant, and then I would just spend a half an hour in their home observing, and I would see, you know, this guy's getting whacked pretty often. They're not awful, but, you know, it's like none of them is causing a bruise or anything, 
but people are just coming up to him, whacking him. Is it any yeah. wonder that he's hypervigilant? Is it any wonder that he's anxious? And you can medicate that, or you can like help him to move somewhere else, you know, and yeah. teach him how to live again where that's not happening. But at, at the same time, you know, it got me thinking. There's the acute, big, bad, awful things. You know, the bad car accident, the physical assault, yeah. all of that stuff that can cause trauma. I'm wondering about accumulated effects of, of these chronic things on some people. And I know that is the case for, for first responders. They end up with post-traumatic stress as a function of, of chronic exposure to, you know, deaths, near deaths, assaults, and so on. But I'm often not, without access to help. Yeah. Or, or if you get help, if you admit that you need help, sometimes there are consequences for that that aren't the greatest. So, but I'm wondering for these guys with, with disabilities, you know, is, is there a lot of post-traumatic stress or traumatic stress that, that is kind of overshadowed by their diagnosis of intellectual disability and is, is not considered because the systems that serve them don't know yet that that's something that should be considered. Okay. Okay. So ABA or applied behavior analysis is used to working in the field of people with developmental disabilities, cognitive disabilities, things like that. And you're trying to, you're, you're, I think what you're saying is you're kind of branching out into some of the, the normal or, um, there's no such thing as population of people without intellectual disability or autism. Yeah. But I'll tell you, I got my start working, um, working in a psychiatric hospital. I started, um, in the, in the mid and late eighties working with people with chronic schizophrenia, you know, with, with, with all kinds of psychiatric problems. And I knew that behavior analysis was was done with people with intellectual disabilities. It never even occurred to me. I guess I was late to the party until the late 90s that this would be helpful with people with autism. I don't know why it never occurred to me. It kind of behavior's behavior, but yeah, yeah. If, if, do you think? Go ahead. Do you think others are going to follow in your footsteps in this? Well, they don't need to follow in my footsteps. There's smarter people in the world, but you know, I I I, I would hope that. Yeah, behavior analysis becomes more commonplace in the assessment and treatment of psychiatric problems or teaching people with psychiatric problems how to live, you know, working with, with couples on their relationships, working with parents and children when there isn't a disability on their relationships and so on. The problem is um, there are a couple of problems. One, people need to get paid for their work, and yes. there isn't always a mechanism for that. Um, if, if one is private pay, accepts only private pay clients, that's one thing. But most of the world can't afford private pay. It's insurance that pays the bills. Yeah. So there isn't recognition yet for behavior analysis in a lot of more traditional psychological or psychiatric areas. And that's probably not bad given where the science and the – well, not the science, but given where the profession is right now. There's been a tremendous yeah. proliferation of training programs and applied behavior analysis since about, oh, 2003 or 2004. My program was one of the first to become, um, it, it was then called an approved course sequence by the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Now they're verified course sequences, but was one of the first um, in 2002 to be so credentialed. 
And I remember the certification board published, and I have it somewhere on my hard drive, a list of these, and there are like 20 of them. You know, now yeah. they're all over the world. But most of these are six or seven course certificate programs that can either be taken as an adjunct to a master's degree in education, psychology, or behavior analysis, or that can be taken as part of a master's program. Um, okay. A lot of people go through these quickly, and there are quite a few you know, young behavior analysts, and there's nothing wrong with being young. I used to be one, you know, be young, but um, <laughs> we, you know, we all I, did. I think right now people are being trained essentially to work with kids with autism, work with kids with disabilities, and even among new practitioners, there's not that recognition that this is kind of a transcendent science that's that's applicable, that's going on anywhere where human or animal behavior is. That I don't think I don't think the profession itself is sufficiently mature for that yet. Okay. So something you touched on was access. And I wanted to ask you as an interdisciplinary kind of person, what do you think of access in the mental health community these days? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I think, you know, there, there, there is, there are the hospitals, there's outpatient service, there's counseling, You know, there's there's a lot of treatment out there, but you have to be able to pay for it to get it right, or you have to be able to get there. And so, I am concerned about people who don't have a lot of means, um, because yeah. sometimes the the publicly funded stuff, while it may be high quality therapy that's delivered when it's delivered, it might be hard to get to. It might be limited in duration or a number of sessions or very often these people have so many needs you know problems tend to be complex it's not just one simple problem that not all can be met at at one time well but also you know there's unless one is court ordered or unless one is is you know told by some authority that has you know power to do it um and i don't know who that would be you got to get help Frankly, yes, spouse. Frankly, a lot of this is is stuff that a person has to come to the realization that she or he needs, and and you know there there's still some stigma. Um, I wish there wasn't. I myself have chronic major depression. I take my mm-hmm. medication every day and I'm fine. And if I don't, within three days I'm a wreck. There's still some stigma to uh, to 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 admitting or to to seeking help when you have a problem. I, I was asked to speak at World Mental Health Day in Peshawar, Pakistan, two years ago. It was absolutely great because there was a, this beautiful state-of-the-art training hospital, which was about 20 miles in from the Afghan border, and it was it was beautiful because they're they're all working on the same issues we're working on, you know, yeah. it's it, access and quality of care and all of that. Um, yeah, so it's not anything restricted just to the U.S. or just to particular areas. It's all over, you know. Yeah. Which is to say that, you know, the world's a sad, awful, scary place. You know, <laughs> most of us are just fine, even those of us with psychiatric problems. It's just, you know, sometimes you need some help. And I think I think the stigma is getting a little bit better. 
And that's kind of what I wanted to get at towards the end of this episode is just kind of like tell people if you know somebody who you think is, uh, you know, at risk for having some kind of mental disorder or some kind of behavioral disorder, you know, be their friend, you know, get them help, um, do what you can. Yeah. Offer, but don't push, you know, if things get really bad, you may have to make a phone call, right? If it's life or death, if you're worried that the person is a, is a danger to him or herself or to others, you certainly have to call, um, whether it's 911 or protective services or someone, or better yet, how about their family? How about, you know, their church? How about others around them, you know, before you involve, uh, you know, authorities? Yeah, there, there's, there's some stigma, but, you know, most of us are going to face something at some point in our lives, you know, that we're going to need help with. So. Well, thank you for that, Ted. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I think you've uh, shed some light on some interesting topics for us. Um, and we appreciate what you do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And again, I apologize for the dogs, but they had a lot to say too. Yeah. Apparently, um, they want to talk about their, their credentials as well. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ted. All right. Thank you, sir. So that's some pretty good food for thought. Yeah. I, I really appreciate some of the discussion around negative reinforcement. I don't think, um, a lot of people are as intimately familiar with how much of our lives, of our everyday activity and our society resolves around, um, negative reinforcement. All right. I kind of wanted to close with a few things. First, I kind of wanted to go over the top 10 most common mental disorders, and I was intrigued by a few of these. This is according to one article I read on Pasadena Villa's website. Apparently, there's some kind of treatment center, I'm assuming based out of Pasadena, California, but most of the internet kind of corroborates these, if not specifically in this order. And we're going to go ahead and start with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. Yeah, so there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about um, autism spectrum disorder. And I think one of the most pervasive ones is the idea that an individual on the autism spectrum has some sort of savantism. So when we say savantism, we're talking about Rain Man or um, like the good doctor where there's this kind of one overly um, skilled kind of competency that somebody has that just isn't necessarily the case in um, all individuals with autism spectrum disorder. There's also kind of this thought that each individual on the spectrum always has sensory issues. I think a lot of times in, in the media today, individuals on the spectrum are frequently portrayed with this savantism. The, the good doctor is just the the one example that's coming to my mind right now. And most of those individuals also have some type of sensory processing issues. And so I think it's kind of a pervasive misconception that people have based on the information that they're presented in in the media. Um, There's a saying that if you know one person with autism, then you know one person with autism. Yeah, I think Rain Man kind of presented a little bit more of a round idea of uh, what the possible ends of autism can be 
there's a lot worse cases that a lot of people don't know about and a lot of people don't see because they get hidden away um, in group homes and in people's homes. They often don't come out. Yeah. I mean, sometimes these individuals have social challenges and our society maybe not being as accepting as they could or should be. These individuals don't get as much access to the community. And so um, there's not as much visibility. I don't know that I, I think Rain Man was a good example of somebody on the spectrum. It's, it is such a, a wide and diverse spectrum. It is a spectrum. The next one up is schizophrenia. Yeah. So I think schizophrenia gets probably one of the more um, commonly portrayed mental illnesses in, in the media. And I think when you think of mental illness or mental disorders, that's probably one of the first types of mental disorders or illnesses that come to mind. Um, talking to trash cans, yelling at windows. Yeah, the I think there were movies maybe back in the 80s or 90s or something where there maybe is a homeless guy with a tin hat on or something like that. And it's kind of like the standard depiction of somebody with schizophrenia. And so... I think people are, it's a scary diagnosis, right? People hear schizophrenia and they're scared. They think of these paranoid, crazy people that are dangerous, not realizing that for one, there's more than just one type of schizophrenia. It's not um, only paranoid schizophrenia. There's disorganized schizophrenia. And there's individuals that suffer from schizophrenia that with proper treatment and medications, they could be your coworker. Um, and can be productive members of society. Yeah, it doesn't always necessarily show. Mm-hmm. I think one of the more common depictions is the beautiful mind. The Russell Crowe, he played the the mathematician. John Nash. Uh, the next up is bipolar disorder. And I think, I think it's a lot more common than... A lot of people think it is, and I think it's one of the ones that gets most often misdiagnosed. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's sort of a stigma in the field about bipolar disorder, and doctors uh, have been notorious for diagnosing it early as uh, anxiety disorder or depression. Mm-hmm. I think it's also one of the more treatable diseases these days. There's a lot of treatments out for it as opposed to, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it, even though an individual with bipolar may suffer sometimes from depression, I think we're learning that it needs to be treated separate from depression, even though depression can be a symptom of it. Um, the standard treatment for depression is not necessarily as effective for bipolar I think it has one of the lowest medication and kind of treatment regimen compliance. I don't know. I get a little, I think in general, um, sometimes uh, we have a tendency to use kind of colloquial mental health terms or disorders. And uh, it can be a little discouraging to me. Sometimes people say, oh, they're totally bipolar or um, in reality, they're maybe a little moody. Or, um, there's not enough to diagnose there. Yeah, they might be a little quick to react or something, but to say that somebody, 
um, has bipolar just because they feel one way one day and another way and another day. I think even Katy Perry, she has in one of her songs says, you know, oh, I got a case of love bipolar. And so I don't know, sometimes I worry that when we use a diagnosis like bipolar so freely and colloquially that we minimize what it truly is and how it affects people. Yes. And I think the next one is very similar in that respect. It's obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I think, with obsessive compulsive disorder kind of take offense to the the idea that just because you like a clean house or because you vacuum when you're stressed out or because you know, you freak out when there's a crumb on the counter. It doesn't necessarily mean you have obsessive compulsive disorder. It is exactly what it says. And the behavior that is tied to obsessive compulsive disorder is typically compulsive behavior. It's not something that you control. It's not something that you can think about. It's just something that you do compulsively and without even trying. And the first part of that is is obsessive. Uh, It's something that you constantly obsess about something that you can't get rid of in your head. And I think that's where the the nomenclature kind of devolves for us, is that we think, oh, these things are obsessions for us. Clean, you know, the clean house is, is maybe... And that's not to mitigate, you know, like people out there who do like a clean house. You know, you could have a very mild form of obsessive compulsive disorder, depending on, you know, how severe your your symptoms are, and we're definitely not here to diagnose anybody, but I think it is used frequently, misused uh, Mm -hmm. even more frequently. Yeah. I hear people a lot of times say, oh, I'm OCD. I'm so OCD about that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, and and I think too, when we think of OCD, people think of, I'm going to wash my hands 30 times. I'm going to turn this doorknob before I leave the house or things of that nature. And And while there is a behavioral component to OCD, it can also be just kind of getting um, obsessed and stuck on certain thought patterns too. The next one up is anxiety disorder. And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with uh, depression. Um, I didn't see depression on this list as a matter of fact. Which is kind of surprising. Yeah, it is. But there are a lot of treatments that are the same between anxiety disorder and depression, Mm -hmm. uh, true clinical depression. And I think that uh, a lot of people suffer from these disorders and don't necessarily get diagnosed, but they are a couple of the most treatable ones out there today if found early. And the next one after that would be phobias. Mm -hmm. And these are characterized not as a, a fear but as something that becomes debilitating, something that actually prevents movement, something that triggers a very severe fight or flight response, mm-hmm. um, something that would be probably heavily associated with the amygdala. And I think that a lot of people think that a phobia is just an irrational fear. And while it might be irrational, it's a lot more severe than a fear. And I think it does get mitigated in the same sense as like obsessive compulsive disorder or schizophrenia Mm -hmm. in that a lot of people think, oh, I'm phobic of, of spiders when really, I mean, you're perfectly capable of 
of running around the room. Mm-hmm. You might get a little attention and reinforcement from having a nice, cute little high-pitched scream and jumping up. Yeah. What do you think the the um, in society today, people being so eager or open to freely using like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm so OCD or they're totally bipolar or I have a phobia of spiders, kind of using those things more frequency frequently giving themselves those labels do you think it's a positive thing in terms of maybe there's more awareness and people don't mind saying they have OCD or do you think it's almost to the detriment because then it it gets kind of mitigated or watered down the thought and and notions behind the disorders I think there's a dilution there for sure I'm not sure to what end that dilution serves I'm not sure if that that makes it a little bit more commonplace, just something that you hear and you're not as afraid of as mm-hmm. a human being. If everybody's going around saying, I have OCD, and then you meet somebody who actually has OCD, maybe you'll just associate it with that kind of behavior mm-hmm. um, or bipolar disorder. But I think that, I guess in the in the circumstance as to if you're going to in, get involved in some kind of relationship, whether it's just a friendship or a work relationship, or something to that effect, these are mental disorders that can be debilitating, uh, life-altering and debilitating. And people often lose jobs over these diseases. They lose friends. They lose family. Um, mm-hmm. They lose. They can lose everything. Sure. And it's it's really unfortunate. And maybe some education should be required for those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. so I think when you say I'm OCD about cleaning my kitchen and you're not really OCD, I I think it could also, you know, possibly set people up for failure because it gives, you know, it's so commonly used that it gives people a false notion Mm -hmm. of what it could be. And it paints a false picture of what's, what's there and what's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe makes people less sensitive towards individuals that actually have the disorder. Yeah, like maybe you have something else. (laughs) And the next one up is probably the biggest one uh, that's in effect today. It is considered a mental health disorder. It is substance abuse disorder. And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of the addiction disorders, uh, like video game addiction, sex addiction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social media addiction, things mm-hmm. of that nature. And I think it's probably one of the biggest talks out there today, especially with the opioid epidemic. Definitely. That's become so popular in our culture. And I think it's, I think it's just become so prolific that, you know, it's it's almost impossible to talk about without acknowledging the fact that it's a mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. And I think um, putting it in the DSM and the ICD actually does it a great service. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like it's um, gotten better or worse? Like I think about um, TV shows that depicted life and society years ago, you know, maybe, um, Mad Men or, um, I don't know, some other shows back then. And you see people drinking all the time. You see people doing drugs, you see people. And so I wonder, um, if that has had any effect on society. 
substance abuse disorder, um, you know, today I think the biggest conversation in society is around the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, Narcon, Narcan, Narcon. I think it's Narcan. Um, and and so I just I wonder, is it any better than it was previously? Is it worse than it was before? Is has it always been around and it's just it looks a little different? You know, if we think about madmen or how society and people lived and how that that was depicted back in, I guess, the 50s or whenever that that was set. They were drinking all the time. They were doing drugs. So I wonder, I'm just curious if it's any better, any worse, if it's the same and it just looks a little different or... I think drug abuse, um, like many things, has a sexy face and a not-so-sexy face. Mm. And I think we do that as a society. I mean, you look at Scarface, and he's shooting a bunch of people in front of a mound of cocaine. And and then you look at, like, the Wolf of Wall Street, and this uber-successful guy, you yeah. know, still comes out on top after, you know, years of substance abuse mm-hmm. um, issues. And then you look at, you know, the... Uh, the intervention show things like that where you know these people's lives are ruined you know they're they have no hope unless something happens and you know hope the hope is that you know they're doing something in those interventions mm-hmm. um but it's become a lot worse than that i think with the the narcan um and the op- opioid epidemic i think at this point they're just trying to save lives you know they sure. realize yeah. that they're they're not going to stop the addictions all the time and they're not going to be able to get these people the help that they need all the time. But what they can do is just save your life right now Mm -hmm. and hopefully get you to a better place. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think if we've come to that in society and uh, we've come to a place of compassion with those kinds of things that we can kind of go from there and maybe it's not, you know, a starting point, but maybe it's a place to put a starting point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe for another discussion as well. Maybe we can go over that in another episode. Yeah. Uh, next up is eating disorders. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with substance abuse disorders, but it also covers things, you know, like bulimia, anorexia, uh, body dysmorphia. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking like food addiction going hand in hand with substance abuse? It could. I'm not really sure if that's an eating disorder or substance abuse disorder. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure how that's classified. That's a good question. And then after that is personality disorders. Yeah, personality disorders are interesting to me. You know, at least in in the circles and in the people I speak to, I feel like the topic of personality disorders comes up a lot. And I think it's important to note that a personality disorder is not just an annoying personality trait, right? Uh, It's um, the MHA describes it as a deeply ingrained inflexible pattern of relating, perceiving, and thinking that causes distress and impaired function. So there's different types and clusters of personality disorders. There is a cluster A, which involves behavior that seems unusual and kind of eccentric. That's where you have your Paranoid schizoid and schizotypal and and other types of um, personality disorders. And then you have cluster B, which I think is the more frequently spoken about personality disorders. That's, 
your more kind of emotional, dramatic, and extreme disordered personality, so like antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, histrionic. Um, and I f- feel like I hear about the narcissistic personality disorder a lot, which is more than just somebody being a jerk or being um, selfish, but uh, maybe I should evaluate why I hear narcissistic personality disorder coming up so much yeah. in conversation. Maybe I'm listening to too many crime podcasts or divorces <laughs> or something. Um, but And then there's cluster C, which is usually associated more with anxiety and fear type behaviors and avoidant personality disorders. So people that have a dependent personality disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorders. So personality disorders have always really intrigued me for a number of reasons. But yeah. yeah. Then we have mood disorders. And I don't really know a lot about mood disorders. So mood disorders are kind of more related to like mood instability. And so you have like depression, you have bipolar disorder, but there's also things like cyclothymia, um, which is a type of depression. And all of those are, that's kind of classified as a mood disorder. All right. What I didn't see on this list was um, any developmental disabilities like ADHD. I did see autism spectrum disorder that's on there, um, but there's mm-hmm. there's not like ADD, ADHD, or I didn't see dyslexia in there either. Mm-hmm. Next up, I, I also wanted to mention this study uh, it's a study from the New England Journal of Medicine done by a guy named Mark Olson, uh, Dr. Mark Olson, Dr. Benjamin G. Druss, and Dr. Stephen C. Marcus. And they analyzed nationally representative surveys from a few different periods between 96 and 2012. And they found that in this time period, the percentage of young people with more severe mental impairments actually decreased. Hmm. They kind of find that treatment of less severely impaired youths to non-affected youths has been driving a driving factor in the increase of mental health services and treatments like psychotropic drug drug treatments and they also found that most of the increase in mental health service was uh usage was among white people Hmm. and that's kind of a whole other podcast as to if that's due to lack of availability in non-white communities or just over treatment of white people or maybe other causes, and we'll go ahead and leave that for you to speculate for this uh, podcast. That's definitely a good podcast topic for the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there is um, there is a concern with access to mental health services, uh, such as psychotropic drugs, mm-hmm. um, you know, talk therapy, and things of that nature. And access has been heavily debated these days as to whether it's a political issue or not. Mm -hmm. And I think it's become very politicized in the uh, Affordable Care Act um, Mm -hmm. and in the mandate to possibly force employers to provide mental health services to their employees. And a lot of the good employers these days are kind of providing, you know, albeit lackluster, they're providing some kind of mental health services to their employees, you know, like on-site counseling services, Um, specific topic services, relationship advice, things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, it's interesting because with the the increase in diagnosis, you know, and we're talking about all these different 
disorders and um, the DSM and which are essentially labels, right? Yeah. And it, and it's great if we can give people these labels and there's an increase in diagnosis, but if it doesn't result in an increase of access, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Um, and the very last thing I wanted to talk about, we got a comment from Michelle Campbell of Riverside, California. And Michelle says, is there any way to talk about homelessness associated with mental health? Why, yes, Michelle, there is. This is directly from mentalillnesspolicy.org. In January 2015, the most extensive survey ever undertaken found 564,708 people were homeless on a given night in the United States. Depending on the age group in question and how homelessness is defined, the consensus estimates as of 2014 was that at a minimum 25% of the American homeless, or 140,000 individuals, were seriously mental Ill, mentally ill at any given point in time. 45% per, of the homeless, or 250,000 individuals, had any mental illness. And more would be labeled homeless if these were annual counts rather than point-in-time counts. So yes, uh, a disproportionately large number of the homeless population suffers from some form of mental illness. However, new research is being done, uh, especially within other countries, that um, other countries at the lead that might indicate that with behavior therapy and life coaching, many of these homeless people can be treated extremely effectively. I'm thinking of Australia building the little tiny homes, and now that's actually caught on in America. Yeah. And Australia was at one point, I don't, I'm not sure if they're still doing this, but they're assigning basically people to go around and take these homeless people to appointments, job interviews, mm -hmm. uh, doctor visits, things of that nature. And they're kind of teaching them how to budget and things of that nature as well. That's really cool. Yeah. And they found pretty effective uh, treatment in that category. So I just want to say in 1967, the state of California decided to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill. Uh, closing down facilities that offered services and left the mentally ill with no place to go in a lot of cases. Uh, in 1987, the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, passed his Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, or OBRA. And this was supposed to stimulate growth, partially by repealing Jimmy Carter's Mental Health Systems Act that gave federal protection to those diagnosed with a mental disorder, including thousands of veterans. That's right. He repealed the act that protected people with a mental health diagnosis. OBRA closed down facilities across America that provided service for this population, including veterans, and left many of the mentally ill with no place to go. Mm. And this is largely credited with the increase in both the homeless population and the increase in the mentally ill homeless population. Mm hmm so there you have it. And just in the interest of full disclosure, Michelle from Riverside, California is my mother. Um, and I think this is kind of where we wanted to wrap up. And at this point, I just wanted to say, if you guys do know anybody who suffers from a mental disorder, you know, talk to them, help them out. Um, don't treat them like they're mentally ill by any means, but definitely be a friend to them. Uh, most people with a mental disorder want what we all want. Mm -hmm. And if you know somebody who's possibly endangering their own life or the lives of others, um, let them know. Uh, let a loved one know. 
Um, if necessary, call the authorities or help them by giving them the number to a local suicide hotline. And I think that's all we got. Audrey, do you have anything else to say? No. I mean, I always have a lot to say, but <laughs> <laughs> no, don't I, I don't think um, mental health is a really big topic and it's just we so could go much on for days. yeah it's so much to cover just in one episode of a podcast i'm Even sure we'll drive. delve um deeper and in, into other aspects of it i think um it's a growing concern for our society and it is um to continue to evaluate where it's coming from and why and and um it's definitely not something we can ignore these days yeah and just really encouraging conversation and discussion and increased access and and supporting your fellow man Mm -hmm. Uh, if you the listener would like to comment on an upcoming episode you can currently find us on facebook at srsly comma space really with a question mark Uh, if you have a show suggestion and you're not my mom you can email us at (laughs) srsly really podcast at gmail.com you can now find the show on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Anchor.fm, and a few more. And today I'm not asking for any donations. Just do us a huge solid. We're not in this for the money. We just kind of want to get out there and possibly reach people who might enjoy these discussions. So if you are one of those folks, head on over to iTunes or Spotify and give us a like. And if you're on iTunes, go and give us some feedback and rate us as well. Uh, it'll definitely help us grow. And thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye, guys. Uh